I was talking on the phone with a friend last week, and she said, Amy, maybe you have some good advice about this. We are not sure what to do. My husband and I find ourselves thinking about work all the time. After we put the kid to bed, we both open up our computers to do just a few more things before the night is over. Then we go to bed and we talk and think about everything that we have to do the next day. We find we cannot shut our brains off about what's hanging over us at work. It's just constant stress, feeling like we have to get things done. How do you keep that from happening? I said, um... I wish I had a magic answer for her. If you recognize yourself in my friend's question, I wish I had a magic answer for you. I knew exactly what she was talking about because I have seasons in my life in that mode. I wish I had a magic answer for me. My friend is recognizing that her life is out of balance, which of course recognizing it, lifting our heads above the fray long enough to say, maybe something isn't quite right here. Maybe this isn't the way I want to be living. That's the first step and maybe the most important step. She recognizes her life is far from the abundance and joy and freedom that she wants it to be. She, she knows something is out of whack with the way she's living day to day, that she's not living the kind of life she's created to live, the kind of life that God wants us to live, and she wants to figure out what to do about it. She wants to find equilibrium. She wants to find balance. For the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about, balance about the times we lose it, about how the Bible offers us resources in those moments, and how we can find our way toward regaining it. We're going to talk about balance with family, with our health, with our involvement in church, and today the focus is on balance in work or in vocation, perhaps the easiest place for us to get out of balance. Some of us spend our whole lives out of balance at work, overstressed, dreading every time we have to go into the office, into the store, into the factory to go back on the job. Now, I am aware that there are a lot of you in this room who are retired. So you might be tempted to say, that is not my problem. <laughs> my dad likes to say, Amy, I have six Saturdays and a Sunday now. But before you go thinking that you can tune out the rest of the sermon, let me remind you that work doesn't have to be limited to things for which we get a paycheck. Okay? It is plenty possible to get overwhelmed and out of balance with volunteer or other unpaid labor. And even if that is not true for you, you have people in your life who are struggling with how to find balance between work and life. You have children or grandchildren that you are influencing right now as they grow and they form ideas about work and vocation. So taking a moment to reflect on this today is you taking a moment to care for them. Perhaps in the news or through other media, you have heard talk of a post-pandemic phenomenon that's been labeled the great resignation or a related problem, the great disengagement. Right, that first label describes an onslaught of people quitting their jobs in the last few years for all kinds of reasons, for the pay they were getting, the hours they had to work, the benefits they were offered for their own mental health. The second term, the great disengagement, is about people keeping their jobs but having this profound sense of emotional disengagement with their work. You might have also heard it called quiet quitting, right? 
And that's uh, especially prevalent right now in, in helping professions like me the medical industry or teaching or some forms of ministry. And all of it is a consequence of burnout, of people no longer finding meaning in their work or finding that their work is asking too much of them and giving too little back in return, whether that's money or satisfaction. But you know, the idea of work being out of balance, that's not new to the world since the arrival of COVID-19. All the upheaval with the pandemic just worsened difficulties that have been building for us for years. In something like 2005, I was in Denver visiting my aunt and uncle, and my uncle, who was a high-powered attorney, nearing the end of his career, he was aghast to learn that I did not have a cell phone. It was 2005. Maybe quite a few of you did not have a cell phone in 2005 either, but he said to me, Amy, what if your boss wants to get a hold of you when you aren't in the office? And I said, well, he'll have to leave a message on my answering machine. That will not do, Amy, he said. You need to be available. What if a church member needs to get a hold of you at some odd hour? They need to be able to call you or text you. You need to get a cell phone. And I just shrugged. Of course, two years later, I had my own cell phone. And a few years after that, I had my own iPhone, which now enables my boss or any of you, dear church members, to get a hold of me most any time. You can text, you can send an email, you can send a Facebook message, you can use WhatsApp, you can use Marco Polo, and I will get the message. You can even call, like on a telephone, and that will work too. Now my uncle was right, he was right, in that he saw exactly where the world was headed. And he was wrong, in that there are some real drawbacks to being constantly connected to our work all the time. And now that more people are working from home, the boundaries are even thinner between when we are at work and when we are not at work. And the pressure to be on call while we're doing the rest of our life is, is as high as it's ever been. Now, one real and detrimental side effect to having fuzzy boundaries between work and the rest of life is what some psychologists call hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. Now, the name sort of speaks for itself, but if you want a definition, we could call it a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, or a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time. You ever been there? Felt chronically short of time? So that person tends to perform every task faster and get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. How do you know if you're suffering from hurry sickness? Well, two authors of a book called The Time Cure warned of these symptoms. If you find yourself moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter or faster, or if you find yourself counting the cars in front of you and either getting in the lane that has the least cars or appears to be going the fastest, or if you find yourself multitasking to the point of you forget what you're doing in the middle of one of the tasks. Now, I read that list and thought, they're just picking on people who like to be efficient. <laughs> Maybe that's because I recognize myself in some of those symptoms and I don't like it. And if I'm honest, it's not a far step from that kind of behavior, trying to game out which line in the grocery store is going the fastest. It's not a far step from that 
to being really angry at people who get in my way or slow me down, like if the checker has trouble doing something with scanning the things. And then it's not that much of a step further to just being angry at the world around me all the time. And that's no way to live. Now, I don't know if the people in the ancient world suffered from hurry sickness. I do know that they worked hard, incredibly hard. They struggled to make ends meet, to have enough to eat, for instance. And I suspect that created some worry for them, maybe about time, probably differently than for us, but still a worry. And they carried worries about if they were accomplishing enough, if they were important enough, if they were achieving enough. And those are also things that can pull our work life out of balance. And as an answer to those sorts of worries, uh, one, one answer we get in the scriptures is Psalm 90. An overriding message of this psalm is God's time is not our time. As we try to squeeze every last minute out of the day, worried about what we need to accomplish, it can be shocking and sobering for us to remember that the clock that God uses is vastly different than ours. The psalmist says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. You sweep them away, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. In a way, the author is comparing us to grass, and that might be difficult to read. But I hear it as an invitation, as an invitation to consider what we think is so urgent today, to realize that in God's eyes, it is not urgent at all. We worry so much about months and weeks and days, and God's perspective is in millennia. I mean, doesn't that just make you stop and kind of take a breath? God looks at the world with the longest of long views. And maybe remembering that bigger picture, that much, much bigger picture, I can let go of some of the things that seem so incredibly urgent and dire today. The psalmist also reminds us that in the long view of God, our lives are remarkably short. He says the days of our life are 70 years or perhaps 80 if we're strong. Even their span is only toil and trouble. Soon they are gone and we fly away. Again, maybe not the cheeriest of thoughts, but again, I hear it as an invitation. If I only have 80 years, then what's most important for me to do? Where do I really want to focus my time and attention? What are the things that are going to make me feel the most satisfied at the end of those 80 years? Is it going to be that I got all my errands done today with the most efficiency possible? No, not that. Is it going to be that I got all my email answered in my inbox? No, not that. What then is it that feels most important when I look at the span of my whole life? And how, remembering that, can that invite me to step away from the hurry sickness of today? Now, to me, the real gift of Psalm 90 is actually the last two lines. This is why I love this psalm. It says, let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. 
Even after reminding us how short our lives are, the psalmist praises God and asks that God would bless our work, would make it prosperous, would make it fruitful. The psalmist is affirming the value of work and asking for God to bless it. It's a reminder to us that God has enabled us to work to contribute to the world in beautiful and positive ways, whether paid or unpaid. God has equipped us to work, and God calls us to certain jobs, to certain tasks, to certain careers. God cares about how we spend our days, and God wants us to work in ways that honor the gifts that God has given us, prosper the work of our hands. It's a way for us to say, God, I know that you're the one that ultimately saves me, not how hard I work, not how much money I earn, not how big my accomplishments, none of that saves me. Only God, only you can save me. So what I'm doing for work, may it be pleasing to you, God, and make it worthwhile, make it matter, make it good. Now, Maybe I feel this prayer, prosper the work of our hands. Maybe I feel it especially keenly because I try to remember most days that what I'm doing, this work of pastoring, that it is a calling from God. The days that I forget that, those are the days that I'm most stressed, most hurried, most overburdened. I apologize when you find me on those days. When I look at my list of tasks that I have to get accomplished and I see that as my only job rather than the ministry to which God has called me, that's when I'm most prone to hurry sickness and all the consequence that it brings. But you know, pastoring, it is far from the only kind of job that God calls people to do. A sense of calling can be there for you, whatever kind of work it is that you do be it teaching or nursing or working in an office or making something in manufacturing or serving others through the restaurant industry or or keeping people's air conditioners working or any of a thousand other jobs can be places where we are called by God to serve, to work, to bless others. And when we pray for God to prosper the work of our hands, we remember the gift that work is to us and we ask for God to be the one who makes it fruitful. If you catch yourself living a life of hurry sickness this week, I want to encourage you just to stop. Just take a moment to take stock. And ask yourself, is everything on my plate really so urgent? Or is there something I can set aside in order to regain a sense of myself? There's a devotional writer from a century ago named Letty Kalman. And she wrote once about a story from Africa, which may or may not be true, but it holds a deep truth for us. She wrote about an Englishman who was exploring the deep jungles of the continent and traveling like British royalty. He'd brought fine wines, his favorite foods, tons of books and parchments, furniture and clothing. He had so much stuff with him that he had to hire a bunch of strong men from the villages to carry all his stuff, to portage it through the jungle. And on the first day of this grand safari he was taking, he pushed the laborers at an exhausting pace. On the second morning then, the men refused to move. He was furious. and demanded to know why, and finally one of the young men explained that they were not especially tired, rather they had gone too far, too fast on the first day, and they had to wait for their souls to catch up to their bodies. 
Mrs. Kalman concludes her story, and remember, she was writing a hundred years ago. She says, this whirling, rushing life which so many of us live does for us what that first march did to those poor village men. But here's the difference. They knew what they needed to restore life's balance. Too often, we do not. Psalm 90 encourages us when life feels out of balance to take the long view. And I find help in doing that from theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote, nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Hmm, Hold on to that for the day. (laughs) Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in the immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend or foe as it is from our standpoint. Therefore, we must be saved by that final form of love, which is forgiveness. May it be so. Amen.